Welcome to Mormon Book Reviews, where an evangelical encounters the restoration. Uh, so uh, this is going to be, uh, and by the way, my name is Stephen Peidecker. I've noticed I haven't been saying my name a lot in the interviews. So uh, just real quick, a uh, couple things. I, a lot of authors have been sending me books lately, and uh, I've been doing a lot of traveling lately, and I'm going to be getting to the books, and I'm going to, and for you authors who've been in touch with me, I will be back in touch with you to let you know when you can come on once I get the books uh, written. Um, and uh, so let's go on with our program. So I have a special guest here, and his name is Adrian Larson, and I am so excited about the work that he is doing. It's truly unique within the restoration, and it's kind of an untold story um, about just the history of the Hebrew, potential Hebraic roots and origin uh, that might be the influence on the text of the Book of Mormon. And so he came out with this really interesting uh, book. But before I talk about it, I want to welcome Adrian to the program. Welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here, Steve. So uh, a little bit, and we're going to talk a little bit about Adrian and his uh, faith journey, which is also very interesting. But we're going to talk about the work that he's doing um, for this fabulous volume. Um, it's called The Stick of Joseph in the Hand of Ephraim. And I was sent this beautiful goatskin edition. And essentially, it is a English language Book of Mormon, but it's uh, Hebraic in its orientation. Would, you, would that be a fair description on some level, Adrian? Yeah, I think that's really accurate. Okay. So <clears throat> what was the purpose? And, and actually, I was just going to go through the intro here because I find what you had to say, oh, I'll get to that in a second. Um, a lot of people don't realize this, but there's not a lot of Jews who have really been made familiar with the Book of Mormon. It's kind of like this black hole within Jewish thought, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, just generally speaking. And the most fascinating thing about the Book of Mormon is that we're told that this book is primarily to the Jews and, and to the scattered, uh, the scattered among and, and also to the people obviously who live in Israel today. Why don't we talk a little bit about why you think it's important that this book was made and why is it that really a lot of Jews haven't been told the story about the Book of Mormon? Okay, that's a, that's a great question to start with. So it's interesting what you said at the beginning that there is not a lot of familiarity with the Book of Mormon among the Jewish people. And Unfortunately, probably the most familiarity is that, oh, that's the title of a, of a musical that kind of mocks uh, Mormonism and, and mocks the LDS Church and mocks the Book of Mormon and just makes fun of everything. And um, that's pretty much the extent of it. Um, among my Jewish friends, you know, they've heard of the book, don't really have any familiarity. And as you mentioned, right on the title page, it says that one of the primary target audiences for the book is the Jewish people of the latter days. And so I like to tell people that, that this book was actually written by Jews for Jews and that the Gentiles are kind of along for the ride. And um, you think about you know Nephi who began the record leaving Jerusalem during the first temple era and fleeing just before the, the Babylonian destruction. And you can't get more Jewish than that. And uh, so the idea that, that this has never really been introduced in any major way to the Jewish people, I think speaks of kind of the neglect toward the Book of Mormon that it's, it's suffered in general in the restoration. And so this obvious thing about, you know, obviously there's this, this is history and what, what kind of inspired you to look in, at doing a project like this? What was, what, was, what, what was the thought that first was implanted in you or what you came across that made you decide to tackle uh, this subject? Now, I want people to understand that it's what's cool about this particular edition is that everything is, all the, all the names are the Jewish names and all the names of God are like, Elohim, and of course we got the Yahweh, and then we have uh, all the names. Book of Mormon names are in a Hebrew uh, uh, setting or with Hebrew he names. Hebraic format. Hebraic yeah. format. Yeah. yeah. So just kind of give me like what? What? I mean, this, I'm so fascinated by it. what was what caused this thing to come to, into existence. Well, uh, so building on 
what I said a moment ago about the lack of familiarity with the Book of Mormon and that combined with the idea that there's a great resistance to Christianity in general among Jewish people uh, and primarily because of how Christians have treated Jews for 2000 years. It's it's just a long, horrible, blood-soaked history of persecution, violence, and, and being awful. And um, so you take that and you say, oh, well, here, I've got a book for you. It's written by Jews for Jews. Will you read it? And the book talks about churches and getting baptized, and here's the apostles, and here's Jesus, and all of these things that immediately are setting off red flag after red flag after red flag. And I guarantee you, Nephi was not talking about apostles and baptism and Jesus. Uh, the, the original writers of the Book of Mormon would have been speaking about Yeshua uh, because that was actually his Hebrew name. Jesus is a Greek name that came about because of the, the Greek influence, or you might even say the Greek pollution in the religion uh, well, in the Jewish religion in the beginning and, and later in Christianity. So the point is, so many of these terms are not only foreign to the Jewish experience and foreign to Jewish religion, culture, values, but they're actually offensive. And really, they're, they're terms that were designed for the Gentile audience to whom the book was first published. And so replacing those terms with their correct Hebraic equivalent and I want to I want to emphasize that that this is correct. Uh, Nephi would not have spoken about the church, but he may well have spoken about the assembly, which is a is a very Hebraic way to look at it. So replacing those those terms or restoring those terms to the format that are that is culturally appropriate for Jewish readers, and introducing the ideas, including the idea of the Mashiach, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the Christ. Christ, of course, comes from the Greek word for one who is anointed, and that's the same as the Hebrew word Mashiach, which means one who is anointed. So introducing the Mashiach as a Jew and introducing the Book of Mormon writers as Jews who preserved something from the first temple period is really um, not only important, but also intriguing and far more culturally appropriate and accessible to a Jewish readership. So I was going through the intro and a few things I've noticed. Uh, one of the things I kind of like, this is a note of warning about this book. Um, the Stick of Joseph in the Hand of Ephraim is not just another book. Rather, it is the following unique, uh, unique and extraordinary things. The sounding of the shofar to the scattered tribes of Israel as Yahweh's final attempt to gather his people. A dire warning to the United States of America and a cry of repentance to the modern state of Israel. Any nation that does not honor Elohim, the Elohim of Israel will not survive an independent witness of the Mashiach, Mashiach and the covenants given by Yahweh to Israel, um, and a couple other, uh, an invitation to believe and receive the promises that Yahweh extends to those who, to his people. So that's kind of like your introduction to a Jewish audience of what this book is all about. Now, in the intro, I think basically you only mentioned that it's based on the Book of Mormon one time in, in, in the entire book. Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. And so, and you refer to Joseph Smith Jr. as Joseph Ben Joseph, which is Joseph's son of Joseph, correct? Correct. Okay. And I also noticed that when you do the dating, you don't do BC or AD, but you do uh, CE for common error and BCE for the, before the common error. Um, so you were very thoughtful in trying to de-Christianize it to the point where, but de-Christianize a lot of the, but what was put onto the text mm -hmm. and then bring out the Jewishness of the text. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and I want to be careful, and you've made this point, I'll make the point again. De-Christianizing does not mean removing Jesus Christ, because this is a very Christological book, or more specifically, it's very messianic. Mm -hmm. But it is instead introducing the Messiah, not as a Greek caricature uh, that, that has been, you know, that Christianity has turned him into, or a Trinitarian God, or any of the other ideas about God, but introducing the Mashiach on his own terms as a Jew. And um, so it's an extraordinarily messianic text, 
without being a quote unquote Christian text, because Christianity is frankly a far more modern invention than, well, than even Jesus Christ experienced. Jesus Christ was a Jew. Yeah, I mean, if you look at somebody in AD, AD 35, a follower of Christ, and told them what it takes to be a Christian, I think they'd have a hard time recognizing that, correct? Oh, absolutely, yeah. Uh, but they would, uh, they would be far more interested in talking to you about the Judaism that they had known and lived, and what the, the Messiah, as they recognize him, is now preaching and how that amplifies their understanding, brings enlightenment to them, etc. I think that would be um, the, the thing that they would want to talk about rather than, you know, what Catholicism became or Protestantism became or even uh, the various Christian sects of today, which the Book of Mormon has no good thing to say about. Uh, then those are my people you're talking about. <laughs> I'm I didn't write the book. Exactly. And I understand it totally. So, and, and let me ask you, so why is it that the, the translator, Yosef ben Yosef, in, mm -hmm. in, in this period of time leading up to 1830 before the publication, why did the translator choose to use more Christian terminology and not use more uh, of the Hebrew? Like, why did he use church instead of assembly? Um, you, you understand what I'm saying? Was, mm -hmm. was the translator kind of imposing his kind of, his 19th century view onto the text or what would you say to that or was he just trying to translate it in a way that would be understandable to an English language audience so the way I like to approach that it's my belief that Joseph Smith or as you mentioned Yosef ben Yosef was given the words and and so therefore uh because he certainly wasn't you know translating in the word in the way we would use that that language today, a, a scholarly process of understanding one language and rendering it into another language that you also understand. He was not doing that. I think he was receiving the text in a revelatory manner, word by word. And therefore, I don't think that he was imposing anything on the text. I think this is what the Lord chose for the text to read. But I think the Lord did that because the audience that it was initially targeted to and the, the text is very clear about this too. It goes first to the Gentiles and to the Gentile Christians of 19th century America, uh, the King James Bible was what the word of God sounds like. And therefore, if you're going to introduce another book and say, this is scripture, this comes from God, it better sound like the King James Bible. And so something to keep in mind, and this is lost on, on us perhaps nowadays, the language that is used in the Book of Mormon in 1830 was 400 years out of date. It was antiquated language in Joseph Smith's day. They didn't go around talking like that. And so he, it was antiquated when he translated it. Therefore, it had to be intentional on the Lord's part. Okay. Okay. That's interesting. So in the text of the Book of Mormon, what, what makes it unique to um, the traditional Christian scriptures of both the, uh, you know, Old and New Testament or the Hebrew scriptures and the Christian scriptures is um, in the, what we would call the Old Testament period mm -hmm. of the Book of Mormon. Uh, we have a lot of Jesus in there. Uh, we do have people calling themselves Christians before he arrives. We have people doing baptism and starting churches and stuff like that. How, how does this text, this uh grapple and kind of like to a Jewish audience, they're going to be like, what's going on here? Why is, what's, what's all this Christian stuff happening in our period, if you will, <laughs> our dispensation? <laughs> yeah. So this points out a larger conundrum, really. And here it is. You won't find any mention of the Messiah in the Old Testament. Okay. Does not exist. That word, Mashiach, only appears in terms of anointing a king, for example, making him an anointed one, but the anointed one, the Mashiach, the Messiah that Jews have been watching for for thousands of years, literally, is never even mentioned in their own scripture. And I believe it's because there was a concerted effort at some point in the past to remove the idea of a savior coming to redeem the creation. Um, because of that, you have uh, all sorts of extra canonical authors that appear in the Book of Mormon. For example, Zenoch and Zeus and Nahum that are unheard of in the Old Testament text and yet are 
very commonly quoted among these Jews that fled Jerusalem just prior to the Babylonian captivity. So what I take from all of that is that the idea of a savior, the idea of the Messiah has never been welcome in this world, has been fought against continually, and at some point in the past has been removed from the canon. Uh, you have Book of Mormon authors who are saying, oh yeah, all the prophets, all the prophets since the beginning have talked about Christ. Where? It's not there. You have Isaiah, which, you know, in very oblique poetic terms that can be interpreted other ways, speaks about, you know, the suffering servant, for example. Mm -hmm. So what I take from all that is that there was a vibrant understanding among the Book of Mormon people about the Messiah who would come. They knew his name, they knew what to expect, but that knowledge was not common. When, when Nephi left Jerusalem, this was new information. You recall the book begins, chapter one, you've got Lehi, and you've got Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Prophets are warning the people. Lehi goes and prays. There's a pillar of fire on the rock before him, which ought to tell us all kinds of interesting things. But in the end, he has a vision. He has a revelatory experience. And in this vision, the one who is seated in the midst of all the angels in eternity, the one on the throne, hands him a book and tells him to read it. And in the book, in the vision, he learns, you know what? There's going to be a Messiah. That tells us that he didn't even know. Lehi was not familiar with this concept. Then when Lehi goes to preach, first he says, you need to repent or Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. You're all wicked. And the people laugh at him. They think that's really funny. Uh, he's cute because they're so religious. They're so, they know how righteous they are. And telling them to repent is laughable. It's a joke. But then he says that the things that he read in that book told him that there's a Messiah that's going to come. And then it got deathly serious. That's when they said, we have to kill him. We can laugh at him if he calls us sinners and tells us to repent. We're going to be destroyed. Ha ha ha. Funny little man. But if he says there's a Messiah, we will kill him. That tells you the milieu that they came from. That's what was going on in Jerusalem in 600 BC. Hmm. So this is very fascinating because so often when I hear like the proverbial many plain and precious things removed from the scriptures, it always seemed to be something that was implied about the New Testament. I've never quite heard that explanation talked about the, the, about the Hebrew scriptures. Um, that's very interesting to me. Is this, is this kind of something that you came on to, to your own study to determine that that's what you thought was happening? Or is this an idea that maybe has been uh, tossed around in the past by others? Certainly, I've encountered ideas that run parallel with this. Um, the notion that Lehi was not aware that there was a Messiah to come mm -hmm. until he was made aware, until after the pillar of fire, and he sees into heaven, and he sees the Messiah, and he reads. Um, I mean, it's plain as day in the text. It's just, I don't recall anyone ever pointing it out before. And that, that when Jerusalem was destroyed, he, Jerusalem was destroyed because their religion had become so corrupt that God was done with them. It was an absolute offense. The northern kingdom was destroyed, and now the southern kingdom, they're carried away captive into Babylon. So whatever they were up to was apparently extraordinarily bad, and God would no longer protect them, would no longer protect the temple, would no longer claim them as his own, with the exception, apparently, of a small group or groups who fled just before the destruction. So you make it sound as though that this there's been an, like, they were actually tampering with the scriptures while they were still around, like, like, yeah. So Lehi didn't know about it, but you're saying that there were some prophets who were talking about it. There were some books that were written that were kind of forbidden. Is that, is that kind of what you're implying? Not only that, but you recall that as soon as they fled, they immediately had to go back and they had to get the record that's called the plates of brass. Mm -hmm. And that record, which I could spend the next hour talking about, Mm -hmm. um, but I won't. I'll just summarize and say it contained all the writings of all the holy prophets back to the beginning. And it was carved into metal, so it's very hard to tamper with that. 
It was kept in a treasury under lock and key where it was apparently inaccessible and protected. And because of all that, I think there's a high likelihood that it was the last, the only remaining correct record of what you and I would call the Old Testament. And the reason that they had to go back and get it, I mean, there are reasons given, like how are we going to teach our children the law if we don't have it written? And that's all very valid. But I think more importantly than that is this was a rescue mission to rescue the only correct record that existed at the time that everything else had been tampered with or destroyed. So the plates of Laban basically are the, it's the entire story. And if they're ever recovered, we would then have the full, the full story of both the Hebrew scriptures and then, I mean, right, basically, right? Yeah. And when it's called the record of the Jews yeah. that they went back for, it's not just, oh, yeah, you know what? We're going to need a Torah so our kids will understand, hey, Nephi, run home and grab our copy of the Torah right. or go to the synagogue and get the scrolls or no, no, no. Go to the temple treasury and get the only true and correct existing copy left on earth. Now, <laughs> I do think you that's th what was going on. Do you think that it was God telling Lehi, there's, there's this record, you got to get it? Is that kind of where the implication is? Oh, absolutely. Yes. Okay, that's very interesting. I've, I've never heard that before. And I like to study and read about a lot of things. This is very novel, very interesting to me oh, good. Uh, to hear this. Yeah, I love it. <laughs> good. Yeah. And well, and, and I'm, all, I'm only telling you what the text says. You know, yeah. Lehi says the record of the Jews is in Jerusalem. You've got to go get it. Um, and, you know, don't come back without it, essentially. And, and they do. <laughs> and was th those records, were they written in Hebrew or were they in Reformed Egyptian? Uh, it doesn't say Reformed. It says they were written in Egyptian, which is a fascinating mm -hmm. thought because of the, the likely origin of that record, mm -hmm. um, where it started, when it started, and who, who started it is really um, helpful to understand that. It, you know, I, I, it's my personal belief that the record was started by Joseph in Egypt um, as a restoration of the records that had been destroyed by his jealous brothers that went back to Adam and um, that, that he would have received as part of his birthright. And so when he had the wealth, the power, the influence in Egypt to hire the best craftsmen to create a record that was a lot harder to be destroyed, I think that's where it started. It was written in Egyptian, it says so. Um, and the fact that Hebrew records were being kept in Egyptian uh, was, of course, uh, laughable in Joseph Smith's day, and he took a fair amount of mockery for that. And yet, now archaeology has borne out that this was a common practice, that you could actually write Hebrew using the Egyptian alphabet phonetically, because you could do it in a more compact way. And so, you know, other records have been found, actual Hebrew written in Egyptian in various forms. And so I think that's what was going on. And the record was current. It was being kept at the time uh, that Lehi sent his sons back to retrieve it because it had the writings of Jeremiah in it, who was yet alive and yet prophesying. Mm. So whoever, whatever cadre of people were maybe clandestinely keeping this record up to date, they were certainly devoted and certainly um, protecting it. You look at the lengths that Laban went to to protect it. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah, no, this is this is a great this is great. I'm, not, I'm I like and, original. And we, we haven't even gotten to the stick of Joseph, which no, that's okay because I'm loving the conversation. <laughs> so whatever, wherever you want to go, this is I'm having a great time. Oh, good, good. I'm I'm you know I'm a total outsider. So uh, you know I had an evangelical go after me one time when I said I don't have a dog in this fight, and he said, "How can you call yourself an evangelical?" And, and say you don't have a dog in this fight. And this guy's actually a pretty well-known Christian apologist whose ministry is to Mormons. And I was like, you don't, you don't understand. I'm, I, I'm not here to put my views in. I want to hear what other people have to say and then let my audience decide. And so let's talk about the stick of Joseph, man. Um, right. Let's do that. Uh, a few things that I found really fascinating is uh, if you go into footnotes, and you make a point in the introduction to say that it's a minimal, uh, that if you had to use all the footnotes that talked about the Hebrew uh, aspect of the, the Hebraic aspect of the book, that it, you would take volumes. So what you guys did, which I thought was really cool, was you would make references to like uh, the, the Zohar, 
uh, Kabbalah, um, Rabbi Halal, Talmud, the sure. Talmud. Yeah. And so you're integrating that into the text. And so just about every other page has at least a footnote on it and, and, and kind of does references also to the, of course, directly to the Hebrew scriptures and then other Jewish sources and writings. Um, very interesting take there to do that. Uh, what, what made you decide to go that route? So the idea again is that, um, because the, the book is so incredibly Hebraic, not just in its structure, not just in its grammar, but in its ideas, in its thought. What we wanted to emphasize was that if you look at other sources of Jewish thought, and this isn't an endorsement of those sources, this isn't an endorsement of the Zohar or Kabbalah, this isn't an endorsement of the Talmud. All it is is saying, if you look at Jewish thought on the whole over the last several thousand years, you will find that the Book of Mormon is very much at home, very much in agreement with a lot of Jewish thinking. And the, the idea that Joseph Smith could have made this up out of whole cloth is um, so laughable. It's right up there with the that, that old um, analogy that if you had an infinite number of monkeys and an infinite number of typewriters, one of them would eventually type the works of William Shakespeare. Um, to be or not to be, that is the, oh, we were so close. It's the same idea to think that, that Joseph Smith randomly managed to make this up out of thin air when you find things here that are absolutely in agreement with even quoting from other Jewish thought that, that, that was unknown in his day or that he couldn't have possibly had contact with. Uh, to us, that's a point worth making. We want people to understand that Yosef ben Yosef didn't just sit down and write a book, that this did in fact come from the God of Israel to his people as a loving, kind attempt to recover them. So a lot of, of course, people throughout the years of when they discovered the chiastic structure, you know, the, mm -hmm. and then there's like saying that that's perhaps an underlying Hebrew, that's about as far as most people take it. Like, oh, it has, yeah. you know, so you're, you, you've, and actually, some people say that's not as strong as an argument as people would think. Uh, but you, what you're saying is you kind of have a stronger argument than just the chiasms. Oh, by far. Yeah, absolutely. And the chiasms are amazing and fascinating. I think those alone absolutely torpe torpedo the notion that Joseph made this up. However, uh, that doesn't even come close to telling the whole story about just what a miracle this book is. So what got you interested in, like, so you're not like, uh, you, you didn't have a background in he learning Hebrew or scholarship and stuff like that. So what interested you to tackle this? Because folks, I just want you to know that, I mean, there've been other people who contributed to this, but you're kind of like the, the grandfather or the daddy of this uh, publication. And so it was, it, you know, uh, you're the, this was, your, this was your, your gift to the world, I guess you could say. <laughs> Well, uh, you know, as, as much as uh, it'd be fun to take credit, I want to I wanna first point out that, yes, I was involved with a group of very dedicated people who worked very hard, um, and my contributions weren't any greater than, than many others and probably less, but okay. I, I was the guy who kind of ran the meetings, and okay. I, I, I oversaw the organization of getting it done, but okay. with that said... You said, where did the idea come from? Because yeah, I was, I was one of a, a very small group that said, hey, we should do this. Um, and really the idea comes from the text itself. When you examine the multiple emphatic repeated places in which the text says that in the latter days, the house of Israel is gonna be scattered throughout the earth and the truth is gonna to come to the Gentiles, a light will break forth among the Gentiles. And that when the fullness of the gospel comes to the Gentiles, they have the responsibility to take it back to the scattered remnants of Israel. And then when you have Christ coming to Bountiful and preaching the, the most marvelous, miraculous sermon ever recorded, which that would be a, another hour to talk about. Um, and maybe we could talk about that some other time. But in that sermon, it's, it's this astonishing double chiastic structure that will blow your mind. And the point of the entire thing is that in the last days, this comes first to the Gentiles and the Gentiles have the obligation to take it to the Jews. And that is how God keeps his covenant. The promise he made to his friend, Abraham, 
that he would recover his people or at least offer them the opportunity. And so when you read the text, if you believe it, you can't escape the notion that this must be done and it must be done in a way that is kind, respectful and loving toward our Jewish brothers and sisters. So that was the impetus is the text itself. I actually believe what the text says and therefore feel that this must be done. So have you, this, this came out in 2019, correct? Correct. Okay. And uh, how many years did it take to, to work on this the group? It actually took about eight months. Oh, wow. Um, you know, starting, starting with the English text and doing a few things, modernizing the archaic words, but not constructions. There's bad grammar throughout this book because what is bad English grammar turns out to be good Hebrew grammar. When you look at the underlying Hebraisms of the text, and we very much wanted to respect that, but antiquated words that people don't use or understand anymore, uh, we got rid of the these and thous, we modernized um, the names of deity, the names of various terms, um, and doing that work according to a, an organized structure and an organized plan with a team of people working on it. Uh, it took about eight months, uh, really a little less than that to get to our first publishable draft. We printed up a few copies, which we then proofread, found all our errors, or at least a good number of our errors, and, um, and then published a final version on Joseph Smith's birthday in 2019. And I'm just wondering, have you received any response or feedback from any Jewish readers of this book? You know, uh, we have received both positive and negative feedback. Um, for the most part, it's created a lot less of a stir than um, you might think. Thousands of copies have been sold, so to speak. And I want to point out that copies that are sold uh, are not sold at a profit. They're sold at cost. Um, but it's also available for free in downloadable PDF or free online in a, in a searchable website. There's eBooks. All of that is, you know, nobody's profiting from any of that. But uh, aside from, you know, some positive comments, some negative comments, for the most part, uh, people buy it, read it, and we don't hear much from them. We have, you mentioned in the, in the introduction, a point that we tried to make. And that is where we said, uh, the stick of Joseph in the hand of Ephraim is not just another book. Rather, it is all of the following. Um, and then we said, uh, as is always the case with Elohim's work, there will be opposition to this effort. Those who fight against it or say, this is just, or that is not, in an attempt to recast this text as something other than what it says it is, are dangerously ignorant, wicked, or both. They do not know or honor the God of Abraham who vouches for these words. In fact, they fight against him. They're trifling with your soul. And if you pay them heed, you will receive only disappointment. That's in there specifically because there's the temptation among people to say, oh, that's just the Book of Mormon, as if that's a reason to dismiss it. But what they'll immediately do is they'll associate it with the LDS church, associate it with all sorts of ideas in their heads, rather than letting the text stand on its own. And one of the points we're trying to make is this is not the property of any church. It never was. The Book of Mormon was published before there was even a church organized, and it stands independent above or separate from any church or organization or university that wants to try to lay claim to it. That's also why we didn't stay with the title, the Book of Mormon, because all of that baggage immediately accrues to it. Mm. Now, I just want to point out here, I got it opened up to Moshiach. The first chapter of Moshiach is so that give you and then you know you have the Hebrew name above so that gives you a little idea of how that works so it's you know, of course Mosiah but it's Moshiach I like uh yeah each of the books yours was a little washed out maybe mine shows up better oh yeah the Hebrew there mm -hmm. yeah each of the books begins with the Hebrew title of the book yeah and you see that that was the book of Jacob I was holding up there which mm -hmm. is of course Yaakov and this is the this is what the hardback looks like. You have the leather bound, which doesn't have the artwork, mm -hmm. but this is the hardback, which of course has the Hebrew name as well. And then there's a a little introductory introductory explanation on the back. 
And so one of the things I'm going to do is I'm going to lead a, leave a link in the description. So if people are interested in acquiring a copy, uh, of course, they'll be able to, uh, to do that. Um, have you had any converts, Jewish converts, as a result of this book? Well, what would you define as a convert? Good question. Right. Yeah. What would you define as a convert? Yeah. I would define a convert as somebody who accepts Yeshua as their Mashiach mm -hmm. and who desires to come to him in the way that he has said. I would define that as a convert. I would not define conversion by joining a church or joining some group. And we are not asking anyone to. In fact, we're specifically avoiding that. We mm -hmm. don't want your money. We don't want your membership. We don't want your loyalty to some group or some man other than to Yeshua HaMashiach. So I'm going to now read your introduction, which I kind of held back because I want to kind of move on to a little bit about Adrian's story, which is, I'm, it's kind of unique right in the middle of it. But uh, Adrian Larson has a lifelong passion for the Book of Mormon and the mission of Joseph Smith. He was raised in the LDS Church in St. Louis, Missouri, and served the mission in North Carolina. He hold degree, holds degrees from BYU and Logan University of Health Sciences and is a licensed doctor of chiropractic and certified acupuncturist. Uh, as an entrepreneur, his business develops and markets technology solutions for alternative healthcare. Adrian and his wife, Tasha, were married in the Salt Lake uh, LDS Temple and fully active in the LDS Church until they were excommunicated in October of 2014. They now worship with a local independent fellowship group of Restoration Believers. They were part of the project that had produced a Hebraic-friendly uh, version of the Book of Mormon called The Stick of Joseph and has a blog called toTheRemnant.com. Uh, your parents of seven and grandparents of two, and you reside in Idaho. So that kind of tells folks where this story has gone a little bit. <laughs> At first I said, well, let me just read part of it. And I thought, you know what, let's just kind of get into the book and then give the introduction. So Adrian, uh, let's just, folks, just so you know, understand that, uh, just actually, I'm going to let you, you tell, you tell the audience your journey uh, to where you ended up at. Okay. Um, I'll start with my Mormon credentials, if I can use that word, which I guess the LDS church, which I can't even call it that. Anyway, uh, we were born and raised uh, LDS, both my wife and I, she from Idaho, me in St. Louis. We met at BYU. I served a mission. Uh, we were married in the temple, all of that. We checked every box, always active in the church, full tithe payers, do your home teaching, do your visiting teaching, all of that, front row every Sunday. And um, in 2014, I started a blog. And I started a blog because I was reading scripture and I was noticing that there were ideas or practices in the church that didn't necessarily line up really well with what scripture said. And that wasn't actually what started the blog. What started the blog was um, I was talking to a friend, uh, explaining some of this, saying, hey, wait a minute, you know, this ought to be considered. There's more. What's going on? And the friend, in an attempt to reclaim me to the faith, started quoting from a manual that the church published. It was the teachings of the prophets. That was the series they were doing back then. And they had presidents of the church. And each year you would have a different president. And that was what was used in Relief Society and Priesthood. And so she, that year it was Joseph Smith. And so she had the teachings of the, of Joseph Smith manual. And she started pulling out a bunch of quotes that were essentially telling me I was wrong and that I needed to follow the brother and follow the prophet. They cannot lead you astray. And I started looking up those quotes, uh, looking up the provenance, you know, when did Joseph say this? Where did he say it? In what setting? And I found out that every one of those quotes was apocryphal. They were things that somebody said, Joseph Smith said, 40 or 50 years after he was dead, where you'd have an old man who was a young boy when Joseph was alive, who said, oh yeah, I once heard the prophet say this and this and this, and they would put it in quotes and put it in a manual and teach it as the very words of Joseph Smith. And that to me is um, inaccurate at best and dishonest uh, at worst. And so I started writing about that in a blog saying, well, wait a minute, Joseph didn't say that, or at least there's certainly no good evidence. No serious historian would make that claim that Joseph said that. And um, 
yet the LDS church does because it's self-serving, because it props up the idea that, yes, the prophet can never lead you astray. Yes, the you, you must stay with the majority of the 12 and you will never be led wrong. All of these ideas that basically say, yes, stay loyal to the church. So I blogged about how, well, that's not true and that's not scriptural and, uh, and Joseph didn't say it. And my wife, shortly after I started the blog, um, she posted on Facebook one of my blog posts. And of course, she's friends with a lot of people in the ward. And so word got around very quickly uh, because, you know, we had, I had been gospel doctrine teacher forever and um, was kind of known as a thinker, I guess. Uh, so word got around quickly and it took exactly a week for the stake president's secretary to call us and invite us to come in for a chat. And um, from there, uh, from the time we first sat down with him to the to the day we were excommunicated was 40 days. And so they excommunicated us, uh, me for writing a blog and my wife for believing it. Um, although she hadn't actually written anything or done anything that they would call apostate. Anyway, so we were excommunicated um, and we continued to uh, <laughs> believe in the restoration through the prophet Joseph Smith, the Book of Mormon. Uh, we worship with other like-minded people, many of whom are uh, former members of the LDS church or still members on record, but no longer attending, and who find that um, they would much rather follow Jesus Christ than follow the prophet, so to speak, if I can use the buzzword. <laughs> so that's that's just the quick overview. I'm glad to go into more detail. I don't know how much you'd like me to go into, so... Well, I'd like for us to touch a little bit on it because, you know, I guess, I, I guess, uh, if you want to talk about it, so you, you basically, your group that you're with is kind of informally associated with Denver Snuffer. Would that be a safe, uh, a, a proper way of saying that, uh, or would you say you're formally tied in with them or what's your relationship with Denver? Um, so yeah, the group that we're with generally believes what Denver has been teaching and is teaching, um, believes that it is inspired. Um, but there's no formal organization, there's no church, there's no membership, there's no hierarchy, there's no offices, and there's nobody in charge, which mm -hmm. some people can't wrap their heads around, especially coming out of a very regimented hierarchical structure that you find in many of the branches of Mormonism. Um, so we are believers first and foremost in Jesus Christ, and we believe that the pattern that God follows is to send prophets or send his word through inspired teachers. And um, that when that word is in fact the word of Christ, it ought to be respected, followed, understood, believed, and obeyed. And so um, that's what we attempt to do. But uh, I would add that nobody is revering Denver Snuffer as um some sort of the head of a church or some some man that must be obeyed or honored uh stand up when he walks into the room anything like that and denver will be the first to tell you that he not only rejects but abhors such a notion the only title he will claim is teacher so were you familiar with denver's writings as a member of the church i mean uh, the his books you 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 were kind of still a member but then you went and saw like heard him speak at a few things and then mm -hmm. read some of his books is that fair to say yeah yeah i i was reading the the books that he wrote um which were written to an lds audience and at the time he wrote his first book for example and several others up until he was excommunicated what he was writing was orthodox mormonism it was very um mainstream and comfortable in terms of what Joseph Smith taught. Now, the LDS church became increasingly uncomfortable with it, primarily because they have strayed so far from, from what Joseph Smith said and did and, and taught. But yeah, I was, uh, I was pretty well read as a, as a member of the church and always interested in studying the gospel more deeply. And so uh, encountered uh, Denver Snuffer's writings at at a point in, oh, 2009 or 10, something like that, and uh, and had been reading them. 
Um, and that was part of why I found it so disturbing that the LDS church was attempting to misquote Joseph Smith or put words in Joseph Smith's mouth to teach something that he taught the opposite of. Yeah, so, uh, and of course, a lot of people, you know, of course, Denver was, uh, his books were sold at Deseret, right? Uh, and uh, or you could, I mean, it was a pretty mainstream for a while that, that a lot yeah, of people yeah. read your LDS. Absolutely. I bought, I bought copies of his stuff at the BYU bookstore yeah. for my daughter, who was at BYU. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's really interesting where that all went. And then, you know, I kind of look at, you know, I've been fascinated by the movement that you're a part of. Um, I almost feel like it's kind of very individual based, almost kind of has a libertarian ethos to it. Would that be fair to say? Yeah, yeah, I think so. It, it, it's very much uh, based on the individual's relationship with Christ and not on following a man. Um, the, to the degree that we join together in fellowship, that we work together on projects, it's not because somebody in charge is telling us what to do. It never is. It's because we all have a common interest, have a common desire. I think this, the, the Stick of Joseph project is a perfect example of that. A couple of us had this idea, thought that it would be useful and helpful. We had friends that we invited and said, uh, will you get involved? Will you be willing to help with something like this? And they did. And there was never a man at the top dictating what must be done. Um, I was a facilitator to, to help the work get done. But even then, um, there was no, you know, I'm in charge of this because so-and-so said I am, and therefore I have the keys. That was never the case. So it's, you're right, it's, it's got a very different feel than what you would find in most Mormon denominations. And certainly it's a very different field in the LDS church where you only do what you're told and you do it the way you're told and when you're told. And well, now that they, with COVID for a while, you were allowed to have the sacrament at home until the day they said, no, you're not. And, you know, even controlling that sacred personal form of worship between you and your Lord the church seeks to jump in and say, oh, we will tell you if you may do that and when you may do that and how you may do that and who may do that and in what way. It's very controlled and we are very much the opposite of that. So your group like primarily meets in small home cell groups, would you say? Is that the... the yeah, yeah. We meet, in, we meet in people's homes. We don't own any buildings. We don't have any, you know, official organization to own a building or there's no budget or bank account. Uh, we meet together on Sundays, we worship together, we meet together other days for scripture study or for social activities or for working together. Um, and very much like the initial believers in Yeshua were doing in the days uh, of, of Christ's ministry on earth. Um, do people, generally speaking, um, feel the need to get rebaptized when they're part of that? Or do you guys recognize outside baptisms? How does that work? Uh, they generally do get rebaptized, particularly when they come to understand that, well, the purpose, the nature of baptism, the idea that it is something that can be renewed, and that that is not only not taboo, but is actually a wonderful way to recommit yourself to the Savior. Uh, and so, yes, uh, absolutely, we recommend rebaptism, um, just as Christ did when he came to Bountiful. Those people had been baptized already, and the very first thing he taught them was rebaptism. So, I'm good friends with Patrick McKay. And mm -hmm. uh, one of the things I find interesting about the, the movement you're part of is that you are making attempts to branch out to all the different branches of the restoration. And for a lot of the smaller groups um, that are part of the restoration, they, they seem to have a high regard and also participate in many of your conferences as well, uh, which, by the way, I guess from my understanding, and it's funny because we were talking about it the other day, it's like, yeah, I thought that guy looked familiar because I watched some of your conferences that you and your wife actually help organize. And so you not only have people that are part of your movement, but you also invite other restorationist-minded people to, to participate in these meetings as well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and in particular, the conference series that you're referring to is something that my wife has uh, organized. And 
Uh, I'll brag on her. She works very hard and I'm very pleased with the work that she does to bring all of the restoration groups together because we all have a common belief in the roots of the restoration through Joseph Smith in the Book of Mormon. And whatever may divide us, we think that those truths, as well as our belief in Jesus Christ, ought to be enough to unite us. And so she's been doing this for four years. And you can check out the past conferences and the past speakers. There, there's a lot of really fascinating people at uh, restorationconference.org. If you don't mind me putting a little plug in there. I'll put, I'll, um, put a, I'll put a link in the description as well. And we, yeah, we invite all branches of the restoration to come and participate. We do it every June in Boise, where we live. And um, it's been a, a wonderful success. We've met some tremendous people. And so we're going we're gonna to keep doing it. Do you ever have outreach to evangelicals or other Christian groups outside of the restoration that have participated or have fellowship with you guys on some level? Yeah, there has been kind of a, um, an organized attempt. I would say that probably Denver Snuffer himself has been the one that's done the most there, where he gave a series of organized lectures specifically targeted to Christians who were not restorationists, um, inviting them to come and, and learn more and understand what the Lord is up to now in our day. Um, and so there is uh, an organized outreach. There's an organized website, a series of videos. There's been a lot of work done there by dedicated volunteers attempting to invite all to come and evaluate this message for themselves. Hmm. This is very fascinating. You know, I've been closely watching. Um, I just remember uh, watching uh, John Hamer and John DeLynn doing a breakdown of that uh, flow chart of the different circles and Denver oh, yeah, being the, the biggest. And I, and I think John Dillon was probably a little jealous that his circle wasn't as big as Denver's. <laughs> well, and I don't know what determined the size of the circles, but uh, that was really fascinating because uh, if it was indeed the size of the perceived threat to the magisterium in Salt Lake City, then it's interesting that they would consider, you know, some no account lawyer from Sandy who rides a Harley and writes books to be a bigger threat than John DeLynn. That's, that's remarkable if that's indeed how they were viewing it. And I'm not saying it is, but uh, it makes you wonder. It makes you wonder what they really fear and what they really value. Um, I, uh, I just want to know, what was it like leaving your former church and joining another movement and not be bound by some of the rules and regulations like the word of wisdom, like strictly enforced. Uh, you had mentioned to me um, earlier that you have a coffee story that you'd like to tell. So maybe talk a little bit about that, but also <laughs> what, what it was like to, to kind of have these, I don't know, you could call them new freedoms or whatever. Well, it's interesting because uh, there's this perception in the LDS church that, that it, oh, if you leave the church, and, and believe me, if Getting, getting thrown out the window is called leaving the church. Getting excommunicated because you absolutely believe in Jesus Christ, Joseph Smith, and the Book of Mormon, and being exed for that because you don't believe in a handbook of instructions written by lawyers, it, that's called leaving the church too. And so there's this notion that people only leave the church because they want to sin. And so they want all this freedom uh, to not have rules. And I guess that is probably most embodied by perceptions of the quote-unquote word of wisdom. Mm -hmm. um, that's a little preface to say that I live very much by what you would call LDS standards, meaning um, I'm faithful to my wife. I believe in chastity. I believe in honoring the Sabbath day and keeping it holy. I believe in revering God and worshiping um, and, and attempt to do those things. Now, the word of wisdom, the way that it was understood and taught in Joseph Smith's day versus what the LDS church turned it into, that's really the question. And so coffee is a great example. Hot drinks got turned into coffee and tea for some reason, because if you take a certain bean and you roast it and grind it, it makes a delicious drink called hot chocolate. And you can you know, drink that with a ton of sugar and it's really bad for you. Or you could take another bean, you can roast it and grind it and make a drink called coffee and that's the devil's potion and that's evil and that will send you straight to hell. But that's all arbitrary and silly 
the pioneers were required to bring coffee across the plains. It was in their in their list of things they were required to bring. Um, it was commonly consumed in Utah. It was commonly consumed in Joseph Smith's day. There was never a thought that that was an offense to God. That's the prelude to this. For years, a friend and I got together every morning to study the scriptures together. And um, we would get together at a coffee shop. We would drink a coffee and study the scriptures. And it was an absolutely wonderful, light-filled thing to do. Uh, would, you know, I'd drop off my kids at school, and then we'd uh, we'd meet and spend an hour and in great way to start the day every day. Um, and I remember one particular day I left the coffee shop and we had had a, a marvelous scriptural conversation about the Book of Mormon and some things that we'd noticed and and it was just filled with light and I was on this euphoric spiritual high and I was driving and I was thinking my upbringing tells me that I could only be filled with the spirit of Satan because I was drinking coffee and I was musing going how could I be so filled with light and so filled with joy and and have such a marvelous spiritual experience and so I'm praying as I drove and saying well that's really odd Lord that I was drinking coffee and and you poured this this light and truth into me and it's so amazing and um like the scriptures are coming alive I you know I remember seminary when I was a kid I'd try to try to stay awake and now I'm just filled with life and joy. And I said, how is it possible that that's happening while I'm drinking coffee? And clear as day, the thought comes in spoken words to me. And that is, why do you think I gave you coffee? And I suddenly had this understanding that coffee helps you study the scriptures, <laughs> which of course it's outlawed in the eldest. I, that's not fair to say, but it was so shocking to me that I laughed out loud. I'm driving down the road laughing, going, I never would have guessed that what I was told all my life was sinful and evil and wrong would help open my mind to the scriptures and help me be alert and focused to develop a greater relationship with my Lord. It was shocking and beautiful and wonderful. So I highly recommend coffee and scripture study. So if you watch any of my interviews with Rick Bennett on Gospel Tangents, um, whether it's on my channel or his channel, I, I allude to the fact that when I visited his church in Lehigh, um, I, one of the first thoughts that popped into my mind was, boy, these people could use a cup of coffee. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, and, it, you know, I grew up in LDS culture, and so you substitute vices, you, you just have different vices, you know, you're addicted to Coke or Red Bull or sweets, sugar is huge. Um, and frankly, coffee is a whole lot healthier than any of those things. So there you have it. So folks, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm not hating on anybody. I love you LDS folks, Church of Jesus Christ, Latter-day Saints. Uh, I've got a lot of you who uh, watch my program. Um, I have a diverse audience. And the purpose of this channel is to just get us talking to one another and having a dialogue um, of restoration and uh, you know, I just think that when I think of this society, where it's gone, uh, how it's being torn apart, and religion should be the unifier to help bring unity uh, and wholeness to a society. But when the faith community is divided, it then just causes there to be more divisions in our society. And as a Christian, um, you know, I started this channel not to proselytize. I started this channel to have conversations with other people within the restoration. This is not even me trying to reach out and have a evangelical tell you things or have evangelicals even watch my program, even though there are some now that are starting to watch. But just to, I really saw this thing and what's so shocking to me is everybody siloed and putting to all these different bubbles and nobody talks to each other. And I just find it to be so, I don't know if, if I'm the Lord and I'm looking at my body and seeing how divided it is, it's no longer really a body. The, the finger's doing something, the legs are doing another thing. I'm kind of rambling here, Adrian, but I just want to kind of give my my thoughts on it. You know, again, folks, this is not about trying to say, okay, which church is correct, which one is the the true one, or anything like that. It's just about having these conversations. And like I, and I tell people, so the important thing is that people know the whole story. I think Christians should know the whole story about their faith tradition. Uh, people within the restoration need to know their full story. That's their right. That is their birthright. And, uh, you know, and I feel like a lot of things been, have been kept from Christians, evangelicals as well. And so, you know, that's kind of where I'm coming from. 
Um, again, I'm ranting here, dude, but that's very well put. <laughs> I, I agree with everything you. you're saying, Steve. Well, thank you. Thank you. And again, this is not me taking any sides here. It's just kind of giving my general observation. And if I misspoke on anything, please, folks, don't take offense. That's not the, my job is not to cause division. It's trying to cause unity. Um, kind of you have any thoughts on that? What that little rant I gave you? <laughs> just that I would agree. <clears throat> it's one thing to look at our cultural quirks and the 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 things we get hung up on and and even find the humor in our foibles mm -hmm. um and it's another thing to condemn one another to hell and so i hope that what comes through is uh that we all have our quirks we all have our foibles my coffee story was just the shocking realization that that what i had thought all my life was 180 degrees off uh, at least from my understanding now, is certainly not to condemn anyone for how they view coffee. I just want to make that clear. But uh, thank you for the reminder that there is a whole lot more that unites us. Even you as an evangelical and me as a restorationist, we can agree on our love for Jesus Christ and our appreciation for what he offers us. Yeah, that's uh, that's well put, Adrian. Well put. Um, so uh, a few things, folks. Um, this is a very fascinating um, book here, and you know, I, I it's something you know, like I do my book review channel, and people you know do buy the books that I recommend or even don't recommend. Um, and I just want to uh, tell you that this is something that's a valuable book to your collection. This is my Book of Mormon collection. This row right here, it's it's expanding. I think, folks, I'm going to do. I did one of my and Evangelical Reviews his Books of Mormon. I think I'm going to, because I got so many more, I think I'm going to add to that and do another follow-up for the second season of my book reviews. But what's really cool is that there's actually, uh, Adrian uh, shared with me, that there's actually going to be something that's kind of, in, this, this, this is just the beginning of a process of something even bigger that's going to happen. That's all I can say. But I'm very excited that in, in a couple of years or somewhere down the road, we're going to have... Uh, an interesting thing that happened. I guess I'll just put it that way. Maybe just speak to that or however you want to. <laughs> well, it's, it's clear that the Lord is very serious in his love for whom he terms mine ancient covenant people, the Jews. He's also, it, quoting from the Book of Mormon, he's very clear in his condemnation uh, of those who would neglect their responsibility to share the good news of the Messiah uh, with the ancient covenant people and at least make the information available to them. Um, therefore, it's, it's high time there was more done. There was greater efforts in that regard. And it's something that's been neglected far too long. Um, the LDS church is bound by an agreement uh, made with the state of Israel uh, in order to get the BYU Jerusalem Center built that prohibits them voluntarily, they prohibit themselves from proselytizing, uh, sharing the gospel. In fact, they make people sign an agreement to not only not proselytize, but to refuse to even answer questions if they, for example, go do a semester abroad at the Jerusalem Center. So the LDS church's hands are tied as far as that goes, but the outreach to the Lord's ancient covenant people uh, must go on. It must continue and it must be done in such a way as to provide the opportunity and the knowledge of the Messiah prior to his return. And so uh, we're, we're doing all we can in that regard. Um, and this, uh, the, the stick of Joseph in the hand of Ephraim is one part of that. I would recommend, by the way, we didn't get to it. Uh, there are a number of appendices in the book that are really, I think, well done. And I can say that because I didn't write them. But those that did, I think, did a tremendously good job outlining some really fascinating uh, ideas. Um, there's a whole appendix on the Hebraic nature of the text. There's an outline of the source documents and the various sets of plates, the various groups that wrote. There's a glossary where you can take the Hebraic terms and cross-reference them to English terms. Um, there's a, an analysis of Ezekiel's prophecy, because as you'll recognize, the title comes from Ezekiel's prophecy, and there's some surprising things about how that prophecy was viewed 
2000 years ago and what people thought it meant and what they were looking for 2000 years ago uh, as evidenced in, in the Targums. Um, so there's a lot here. And even if you're already a believer in the restoration in the Book of Mormon, uh, you will find some fascinating information here. And like I said, you can access it for free uh, at the website. You can buy a copy if you want a copy. But most of all, um, avail yourself of this. I, I learned so much from this project and from some of the really brilliant people that worked on it. And uh, so there's a lot here and I would invite people to learn from it and to share it. If you, if you know folks that would be interested, then uh, please don't hide your light under a bushel. Oh, I just wanna ask just maybe one final question about just your personal faith. And I guess yeah. the question I would ask is who is Jesus or Yeshua to you? Uh, the Lord God, creator of this creation, the, the redeemer who gave his life to redeem us um, by his blood and by what he suffered and who invites all to come unto him and through him receive eternal life. Um, those, are, those are lofty words and perhaps the, the best words to which I have access. Uh, my Jewish friends have been waiting literally for thousands of years for one they term the Messiah who will come. There's a strong Jewish tradition of two messiahs. I'm not sure if you've encountered this, the Messiah mm -hmm. ben Joseph and a Messiah ben Judah. Um, I want folks to at least consider the possibility that the Messiah ben Joseph, who has long been prophesied to be the forerunner for the coming of Messiah ben Judah, was Yosef ben Yosef, Joseph, the son of Joseph, who brought forth a record whose sole purpose is to point to the Messiah so that when he comes, there will be a people prepared. And if I can do something to assist in that effort, then I'm doing it for him, not Yosef ben Yosef, but for the Messiah. Um, I do believe that his return is imminent. And I do believe that we are obligated as believers to do all we can to share his message. Well, thanks for sharing that, Adrian. I appreciate that. And I, I know that you're, you're sincere in your wanting to do this. Uh, and I think it's an interesting thing that you're doing. And um, like I said, the movement, I've been keeping an eye on for a long time. And I think we'll be seeing a lot more things to come. Um, and I'd like to continue this dialogue with you and others in your movement. Now, just folks, you know, I, I have had some communication with Denver Snuffer, and he's indicated an interest in coming onto my program. Um, and so I'm looking forward to that. And so Denver, you know, uh, looking forward to getting that phone call from you, but no, no pressure, dude. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but either way, folks, I just want to remind you all to, first of all, my website is mormonbookreviews.com. And so if anybody wants to contact me, you can actually find a place to send me an email. Um, and so check that out. And I just want to remind my viewers to like and subscribe and hit the notification button to be informed when you're going to go at a new uh, video. Uh, Adrian Larson, thank you so much for coming on. Oh, it's an absolute pleasure, Steve. Thank you for the great questions. I really enjoyed it. And, uh, you know, anytime you're short a guest, I'd be glad to come back. Sounds like fun. I just had some of you offer that to me today, too. So it's really cool. Really cool to meet. You know what? This, this journey I'm on, folks, has been absolutely fantastic. Um, I've been blessed by it. And Adrian, I want to thank you for being part of that journey that I'm on. Uh, it's an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Steve. All right, folks. Be well. We're going to get through this epidemic together.